These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Watching the ship slide into the harbor, Cleopatra Thea likely felt a mix of relief and trepidation. Relief that the ships carried hardened Greek mercenaries who could help her defend Seleucia Pieria, along with her kingdom, her dynasty, and, not least of all, herself. And anxiety that the ships had brought an actual game-changer, someone who might renew the kingdom or, if he proved unfit, destroy it. Either way, the arrival of Antiochus Sedetes would shake up the status quo, one that Thea felt it endured for far too long. In 139 BC, Cleopatra Thea was 25, and her sons, Seleucus and Antiochus, were five and four. Which, for a Seleucid heir, basically meant that they were old enough to flee into exile under their own power. Their father, Thea's husband, the Seleucid king Demetrius II, had gone off to war in late 141, and over a year later, war still ravaged Mesopotamia. If we make the convenient assumption that the dispatches Thea received from the front were as detailed as the historical record, then she likely knew very close to nothing. We know, based on coins, that Demetrius had retaken Seleucia on the Tigris sometime in 140 BC. Likely by defeating Mithridates' viceroy, Antiochus, son of King Arabuzana. But we also know that in 139, Mithridates retook the city himself, and Demetrius was driven back north, likely to Nisibis or Arbella. The historian Justin later made the claim that Demetrius put the Parthians to flight in a series of battles. But none of these battles was apparently decisive, and the war continued to rage. 
A year of Demetrius fighting in the east meant another year of a divided kingdom. With the rebel leader Diodotus Tryphon still holding most major cities. But Thea, along with a Seleucid general named Aishrion, had kept Seleucia Pieria well defended, with Tryphon unable to strike the blow that had win him control of Syria. On the flip side, Tryphon's regime wasn't going anywhere, through basic inertia, if for no other reason and Thea decided the time had come to play her ace in the hole. It was that card, in human form, that even now descended the gangplank, doubtless to the cheers of loyal citizens who'd come to bid him welcome. At eighteen, Antiochus Sedetes was a year younger than his brother Demetrius. They'd both been children when they'd narrowly escaped the usurpation of Alexander Ballas, though their elder brother Antigonus hadn't been so lucky. This was likely Antiochus's first time back, and his first time meeting Cleopatra Thea. Months of correspondence had hammered out their respective roles, and also given Antiochus time to secure some Rhodian mercenaries. And, now that he'd finally arrived in Syria, it was time to seal the deal, by marrying Cleopatra Thea and becoming Seleucid king. I'm sorry, what was that? Yeah, no, Demetrius II was still alive and still off fighting in the east. Then, how could his brother marry his wife and take the Syrian throne? That's a really good question, so let's try to unpack things a bit. First off, Thea was an experienced queen and also something of a realist. Her faction was the legitimate faction, but they also only held a few cities, and their opponent was an experienced general whose grip was proving difficult to pry loose. If they really wanted to take the fight to Tryphon, they needed someone to inspire their troops and lead them in the field with absolute authority. And the straightest line to that was Seleucid kingship. Now, it wasn't, you know, exactly a straight line because of a certain Demetrius II. But since he'd never been popular and had already been away for over a year... Thea likely felt their supporters were more committed to the family dynasty than to any particular figure. So why not give them a new young king they could really get behind? Like Demetrius, Antiochus was a completely legitimate Seleucid heir, who also had the extra benefit of zero negative baggage. And, yes, there was a chance that a bigamous marriage might not be that well-received. But Thea decided the likely benefits outweighed the obvious risks. I also feel compelled to mention that, even though it sounds bizarre, the idea of Thea marrying Antiochus may have come from Demetrius. Granger makes a reasonable case that, given the timing and Demetrius's penchant for detailed planning, he may have actually raised the topic with his wife, his brother, or both. Alternately, it could be just what it seemed, Thea calculating the most likely means of ensuring her own survival. 
Or, in a slightly more mercenary version, Antiochus may have demanded the marriage as his price for coming to Syria. Either way, before too long, the couple held their royal wedding, making Thea the simultaneous queen of two Seleucid kings. And while there may have been a few grumbles at court or some dubious hashtags trending on Twitter, the wedding gifts the couple received shut all that down with a quickness. As Granger points out, during the remainder of 139, coins were minted for Antiochus VII in the capital of Antioch and at Tarsus in Cilicia. Conversely, during the same time period, Coins for Trifon are only confirmed at Ptolemaeus Acco, Byblos, and Ashkelon. As predicted, the elevation of Demetrius's untainted brother was eroding Trifon's support. Once they'd regained control of Antioch, the royals likely returned to the capital. From there, according to Justin, Antiochus took vigorous action against the cities which had defected at the start of his brother's reign. He subdued them and added them once more to the territory of his kingdom. Josephus then reports that Antiochus, whose forces increased every day, marched to fight Tryphon. He was apparently rewarded with an early victory, and Josephus continues that, having beaten him in battle, Antiochus ejected Tryphon out of Upper Syria into Phoenicia, and pursued him thither, and besieged him in Dora. Dora, or Dor, was an ancient Canaanite coastal settlement with Middle Bronze Age foundations. Its fortified design was a likely gift from the Chequer, one of the sea peoples of the Bronze Age collapse who decided to settle in the region. The Jekker had been expelled from Dor during an early period of Phoenician expansion, and the city's defenses had been restored and improved under the Persians. Dor's most interesting role had come around 460 BC, when Athens allied with a rebel pharaoh in its fight with the Persian Empire. The Athenians used the captured Dor as a remote outpost for the Athenian navy basically a trireme way station between Egypt-controlled Cyprus and the cities of the Nile Delta. The siege of Dor by Antiochus VII is described in 1 Maccabees. Then camped Antiochus against Dora, having with him 120,000 men of war and 8,000 horsemen. And when he had compassed the city round about, and joined ships close to the town on the seaside, he vexed the city by land and sea. Neither suffered he any to go out or in. And since we're in the neighborhood, and I'm quoting Maccabees, you can probably guess who's back. As you may recall, after Tryphon killed their leader, Jonathan, his brother, the high priest Simon Maccabee, had thrown his support to Demetrius. That support was obviously qualified, since Simon's primary goal remained the security and expansion of Judean territory. And by 138, in that regard, Simon was doing quite well. Along with having full Jewish support, Simon had managed to obtain something even more valuable, 
official Roman backing for his brand new dynasty. In 139 BC, the Roman Senate confirmed the establishment of the Hasmonean dynasty, named for Asmonius, the great-grandfather of Simon's own father, Metathias, all of which rendered Simon's Judea at least nominally independent from the Seleucids. Those very same Seleucids who, in 138, showed up on their doorstep looking for support. Accounts of the negotiations vary, but it appears that Simon, at the very least, offered Antiochus gold and supplies to bolster the siege of Dor. Which, to be honest, was the only smart move. Tryphon was trapped, the noose was tightening, and Antiochus held all the cards. With the Infinity War moving toward its endgame, the real question shaping up was, what would happen when Demetrius returned to reclaim his rightful throne? Would the brothers find a way to rule together? Would Antiochus VII step back down? Or, gods forbid, would it kick off another bloody cycle of Seleucid civil war? And, in any of these cases, what would be the role of Cleopatra Thea, their mutual Seleucid queen? Fortunately, in some respects, the questions regarding Demetrius's return were soon to be rendered moot. In 138, Thea and Antiochus got word that Demetrius had been taken captive. The details are a bit conflicted. The Babylonian diarist quoted by Granger reports that Mithridates brought about the defeat of Demetrius's troops and seized him and his nobles. Justin reports that, in the end, Demetrius was tricked by a false offer of peace and taken prisoner. News of his capture was likely accompanied by word of what came next. According to Justin, Mithridates put Demetrius on public display before the cities and made a spectacle for their rebellious populations. It was a humiliating end to two years of conflict, and one that left the Seleucid territory securely in Parthian hands. It's worth mentioning that some ancient sources suggest that Antiochus only came to Syria after Demetrius's capture, which does make for a much more straightforward narrative. Demetrius gets captured, Thea feels threatened, requests Antiochus's help, and secures it through marriage. But according to Granger, the coinage proves that Antiochus was king for months, possibly even a year, before Demetrius was captured. Thea indeed had two royal husbands, though for the time being, one was very much out of the picture. Neither Thea nor Antiochus welcomed the news of the Parthian victory in Mesopotamia, but Demetrius's absence did serve to simplify things. A popular king and a powerful queen ruling together over a united Syria, a year ago it might have seemed impossible, but now it was virtually a done deal. All that was left was to conquer Dor and snuff out Tryphon's rebellion. 
In 137, Tryphon fled from Dor by sea and made his way north to Apamea. Apamea had been one of the first major cities to back his rebellion, and was probably the closest thing he had left to a stronghold. But Antiochus VII came hard on his heels, besieged Apamea, captured Tryphon, and had him executed. And just like that, it was over. The bright new era of Diodotus Tryphon was dead before it was five. Thea and Antiochus could rest content that the Seleucid Empire was no longer divided. But there was no denying that it was also much smaller, essentially reduced to those parts of Syria not being contested by the Judeans. It's also important to highlight a few more things. Whatever Thea's feelings on the matter, and again, she's a pretty opaque figure, Antiochus, to his apparent credit, held two unshakable convictions. The first was that his Seleucid Empire would never abandon Mesopotamia, particularly not the foundation cities of Babylon and Seleucia on the Tigris. And the second was that, come hell or high water, he was going to rescue his brother. There's little reason why either of these items had to be urgent priorities. As would later be proven, the Euphrates was an effective place to draw the line with the Parthians. And freeing Demetrius would only complicate his own role as Seleucid king. But Antiochus was both loyal to his brother and as determined and ambitious as any of his predecessors. So he'd leave it to the gods to set limits on what he'd be able to accomplish. The couple's priorities definitely included securing their hold on Syrian cities, and they likely devoted a great deal of effort to installing loyalists, addressing grievances, and the basic mechanics of governance. By 137, Demetrius's troops would have made their way back to Syria, giving the couple a starting point for rebuilding the Seleucid army. From scattered reports they received from the east, Nearly four years after Demetrius's invasion, conflict still ravaged Mesopotamia. In Elemius, after killing Camnascaris II, Mithridates had installed his son, Camnascaris III, as a loyal Parthian satrap. But now there were rumors that a man named Tigraios had seized the Elemian throne. There were also reports that Mithridates had killed some rebellious Parthian generals, and word that another regional power had finally entered the fray, which means it's time for a discussion of Hispaeosines. Okay, so way back around 324 BC, Alexander the Great had established an outpost near the Persian Gulf with the intention of making it a seaport for his capital of Babylon. Though the outpost was later destroyed by flooding, it was rebuilt around 166 BC by the Seleucid king Antiochus IV, who appointed a man named Hispaeosines to be the region's satrap. At the time, the rebuilt city was likely renamed Antioch. But over the next few decades, 
As Seleucid control weakened and Hispaeosinese's power grew, that name slowly withered away. What name replaced it? Well, the city was built as a palisaded fort, Cherax in Greek, and was essentially ruled by Hispaeosinese, so how about we call it the Cherax of Hispaeosinese, later corrupted to Cherax Spessinu. Nearly 30 years after being installed, Hispaeosinese was still in power, and had slowly built his Gulf port Cherax into a multi-ethnic Hellenized city. He'd also developed extensive trading links, particularly with India and the East. Unfortunately, the territory he governed, commonly referred to as the Cherasina, bordered on both Elemius and Babylonia which meant the recent Parthian invasion was very much up in his business. Though they'd likely been recruited as part of his anti-Parthian coalition, there's zero mention of Cherusene involvement until after Demetrius's capture. Details are scarce, but sometime later in 138, Hispaeosinese was compelled to fight the Elemians either under Camnascaris III or their new ruler, Tigraios. At the same time, the Elemians were fighting the Parthians. For Antiochus VII, all this chaos was a hopeful sign that the Parthians weren't invincible. Sometime in this general time frame, Thea and Antiochus likely received some even more hopeful news. Demetrius II was still alive, and being treated extremely well. Actually, a little too well. According to Justin, Mithridates had displayed a kingly magnanimity and sent Demetrius to Hyrcania, where he not only provided him with the mode of life of a king, but also gave him the hand of his daughter in marriage. The Parthian princess was named Rhodaguna, and the couple had already had a number of children. Well, that was certainly news, and as for just how Thea took the news, I'll kick that one a bit down the road until we can see her actions. Antiochus, for his part, remained fully committed to freeing his captive brother. But before he did, there were other things to deal with closer to home. Of course, there was the whole Judean thing. But with Simon in charge, and backed by the Romans, they'd need to bide their time. Anatolia was a whole separate mess, one I'll deal with in an upcoming episode. So, let's go somewhere a little bit new because immediately north of Seleucid Syria are a group of territories I've neglected. Back around the Battle of Magnesia, when Antiochus the Great got beat by Rome, the territories of Armenia and Sophene declared their independence. Armenia is obviously the better known, and was ruled by the Artaxiad dynasty under King Artavasdes I. Sophene was a smaller kingdom, wedged between Armenia and Cappadocia, and ruled by the descendants of its founding king, Zoriadres. Since both dynasties seemed pretty firmly entrenched, 
and trying to reclaim them might upset Rome. Antiochus VII decided to leave them alone. And yes, I'll post a map to help keep everything straight. Just north of Syria, bordering Sophene, was the Seleucid satrapy of Comagene. Its satrap, Ptolemy, happened to be the uncle of the current Armenian king, Artavasdes, and ruled Comagene from the satrapal capital of Samosata. To all outward appearances, Ptolemy was loyal, even minting coins for Antiochus VII. But for decades now, he'd been taking steps toward Comagenian independence. So, Ptolemy of Comagene was worth keeping an eye on. But in the mid-130s, a stranger problem popped up right next door. And this one'll take a bit of unpacking. Okay, so just beyond the Euphrates, around a hundred miles east of the river crossing at Zugma, was the Seleucid city of Edessa. Around this time, for reasons that are hard to nail down, the city was taken over by an Arab tribe called the Nabataeans. Some of you are probably saying, but Scott, the Nabataeans are based way down in Petra. What the hell are they doing up near Armenia? To which I'd answer, I know, that's a really good question. So let's try to figure it out. The Nabataeans were indeed an Arab tribe who'd settled in the region of Petra, at around the same time that Seleucus I was founding the Seleucid Empire. They earned a reputation for military prowess by fending off several Antigonid armies, including one personally led by Demetrius the Besieger. They'd also earned a reputation for fabulous wealth through their trade in South Arab spices. The first Nabataean king, Aretas I, established friendly relations with the Judeans, though in recent years things had gotten a bit more problematic. Josephus reports that prior to his death, Jonathan Maccabee'd gone to Arabia and fought the Nabataeans emerging with slaves and plunder. Nabataean tribes had also spread north, at least as far as Golanitis, the modern Golan Heights. And while they'd never interacted with the Seleucids, that was about to change. The way I read it, after defeating the army of Demetrius II, the Parthians had pushed west from the Tigris toward the Euphrates. This may have been around the time that the legendary city of Hatra was founded. But, equally important, the Parthians may have patronized a Nabataean tribe, led by a king named Osroes, who continued west to conquer the city of Edessa. I've seen scattered references to Parthian backing, and really, given the proximity to Zugma, it's hard to believe that Antiochus VII would have left the conquest of Edessa unchallenged unless he thought that trying to retake it meant immediate war with Parthia. So, to sum up all we really know, in the mid-130s, a Nabataean tribe took over Edessa, renamed the surrounding region Osroene, after their king, and, in doing so, established the Euphrates as the eastern Seleucid border. 
their ruling dynasty, the Abgarids, would end up surprising pretty much everyone by lasting nearly 400 years. So, like with Bactria, if you're sensing some troubles along the periphery, you're definitely not alone. Which is why Thea and Antiochus wanted to prioritize consolidating things in Syria. And why they probably weren't too upset on hearing the news in early 134 BC that the iron-willed state builder Simon Maccabee had just been murdered in Jericho. Simon had been touring his major cities with his sons Mattathias and Judas. At Jericho, he was greeted by his son-in-law, a local military commander named Ptolemy, who arranged a banquet at a castle named Dock that overlooked the city. According to 1st Maccabees, when Simon and his sons had drunk largely, Ptolemy and his men rose up and took their weapons and came upon Simon and slew him. 1st Maccabees says that his sons were also slain, but Josephus says they were taken captive along with Simon's wife. The motivation soon became clear when Antiochus received an urgent letter requesting Seleucid aid. In exchange, Ptolemy offered to deliver all of Judea back into Seleucid hands. Except things were a bit more complicated. Simon's youngest son, Jonathan, also known as Hyrcanus, killed some assassins dispatched by Ptolemy and fled to the city of Jerusalem. Once there, he was installed as high priest, the same position his father had held, then rallied the local population to march on Ptolemy in Jericho. Besieged in his fortress of Dock, Ptolemy dragged out Hyrcanus's mother and brothers and threatened to kill them unless he pulled back. First Maccabees reports that when Hyrcanus saw his mother beaten and torn to pieces, his courage failed him, and the siege of Dock was broken. Ptolemy bought himself some time, but knew that without Seleucid support, he had no way of holding Jericho. So he killed Hyrcanus's brothers, crossed the Jordan, and fled to nearby Philadelphia. At the time, Philadelphia was under control of a man named Zeno Cotylus, who Josephus calls the tyrant of the city Philadelphia, which to me is just a huge red flag. I mean, was there really an independent tyrant ruling a Syrian city? If he'd set himself up during Tryphon's revolt, why was he still in power? So many questions. Either way, his existence was a fact, and Hyrcanus's options were limited. Negotiate with Zeno to hand over Ptolemy, or try to besiege Philadelphia. Which was about when Hyrcanus got the news that Antiochus had invaded Judea. Antiochus had likely assembled the Seleucid army the moment he'd learned about Simon's death and marched it south once Ptolemy's revolt had fizzled. There's no evidence he'd conspired with Ptolemy, but regardless, he was more than willing to use the chaos to assert Seleucid control. 
As Josephus reports, When Antiochus had burnt the country, he shut Hyrcanus up in Jerusalem, which he encompassed round with seven encampments. At a low point in the city wall, Antiochus raised a hundred towers of three stories high and placed bodies of soldiers upon them. Like Tryphon and Dor a few years earlier, Antiochus held all the cards. As the siege wore on into 133, conditions in Jerusalem became so dire that Hyrcanus offered to negotiate. In exchange for a payment of 500 talents, Antiochus agreed to not reimpose a Seleucid garrison on Jerusalem. But part of the city walls were torn down to preempt any further rebellions. Hyrcanus was allowed to retain his roles of Hasmonean prince and Jewish high priest, along with a new role as acting Seleucid governor. But he was also forced to hand over hostages to guarantee good behavior. The basic upshot, as you may have guessed, was the return of Judea to Seleucid control. So, all things considered, the state of the empire in 133 was looking quite a bit stronger, at least if you ignored the Parthian elephant looming off to the east, which, by the way, Antiochus had no intention of ignoring for too much longer. It was also likely around this time that Thea gave birth to another son, the first to her new husband, Antiochus. The boy was named... Come on, guys, let's say it together. Antiochus. Though he'd eventually grow up to attract a couple fun nicknames. Depending on how you calculate these things, he was third in line for the Seleucid throne, after Demetrius' sons, Seleucus and Antiochus, who were now eleven and ten. Of course, if you were utterly tactless, you might also count Demetrius's sons by the Parthian princess Rhodogune. But hey, let's keep things classy for now. As Antiochus started planning his eastern campaign to recover Demetrius from Parthian captivity, a regional thundercrack came down from Anatolia. The latest Pergamine king had died, and... In the absence of any royal heirs, he decided to will his entire kingdom to Rome. And right on the heels of that seismic shift came another much closer to home. Thea learned that her mother, Cleopatra II, had launched a rebellion against the king of Egypt. Her uncle and former fiancé, Ptolemy VIII Physcon. <laughs> 